0: Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. This episode, the history and haunting of Of Lizzie Borden. When I first became interested in the legend of Lizzie Borden, the first thing that struck me is the amount of research that's out there available Uh, books, plays, articles, um, online blogs. One of the books I came across in my research was The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. And luckily for us, Miss Pittman agreed to speak with me via Skype uh, about her book and about the case of Lizzie Borden.
1: Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much, James. How are you doing? I'm doing great.
0: Uh, so tell me, uh, you have done several books in what I'm going to call the haunting uh, series or the haunting theme uh, What exactly attracted you to this uh, particular genre of books?
1: Well, the first book was The History and Haunting of the Stanley Hotel. And while I was writing that book, someone said, have you heard of the Myrtles Plantation? Then when I was doing that one, have you heard of Limp Mansion? Then Lizzie Borden, then Salem Witch Trials. And it became a branding thing. So I just put them all under the History and Haunting of series.
0: So let's jump right in. If Lizzie did indeed commit these heinous murders of her father and stepmother, let me put the question to you, Rebecca. Why?
1: Well, it's very simple. Um, And I want to preface this by saying that everything I did was based on testimony. It was based on trial transcripts, police reports, coroner's reports, interviews. So I'm not making any of this up. I can back it all up with a trial transcript section. Um, but basically the bottom line was, and I do believe this started a couple of years before the murders, uh, her father Andrew and her uncle John started putting together a deal for the Swansea farm that they that Andrew owned. And it was the biggest chunk of Lizzie and Emma's inheritance. This was a 250 acre Income-producing property with cattle, um, and it was only ten minutes away from the from the murder house. And um, they were putting this in place while she was away on a grand tour of Europe for eighteen weeks. And so all of these machinations are coming into place while she's away. And then when she gets back, she's starting to find things out, and the 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 boiler po- uh, plate starts, you know. Coming to life and things start heating up four months before the murders, you can just its like a countdown to murder. You can see her movements of getting everything in place. This was not a spontaneous act of rage the morning of the murders. So she knew what was going on. Uh, the biggest piece of evidence, I believe, I found in the book was the identity of the young man that was on the steps four days before the murders. He was actually a cousin of Lizzie's from New York, and I believe John Morse had sent him to interview to be the overseer for this new cattle deal that they're putting together, still thinking Lizzie doesn't know about it. So what they're going to do is sneak Abby off to the bank and put the deed in her name. And they came up with this scheme that it would look like she got a note from a sick friend and had to go out. But really, they were going to sneak her down to the bank to sign this deed over.
0: And also, there's the question of a will.
1: Well, you have to understand one of the reasons this fell apart and she got acquitted was they were looking for a will they that's what they were pinning their hats on the prosecution the police they were they couldn't get into his safe to andrew's safe that was in off of his bedroom he had a really old i don't think the wild west could have broken into this safe and they could not find the combination they couldn't get it open and so even into the inquests and so forth they were sending men over saying get that thing open because they're trying to find a motive if, for instance, in the will it showed that she was going to be left out or that she'd been disinherited, boom, there's your motive. They finally get the safe open, and it's, there's no will. There's uh, no will, and their case started crumbling at that point. They didn't know about the land deal going on until much later.
0: So let's um, let's take a, a few months to look at method. There's um, a lot of books uh, about uh, women murders uh, state that uh, things like uh, knives and hatchets aren't their, their, you know, weapon of choice. It's usually, uh, you know, something else. So she chose a hatchet?
1: Well, here's my opinion. Uh, I do believe she tried to poison them two nights before Tuesday. Both of them. die. died. Wednesday, she's blatantly running around trying to find prussic acid when the arsenic didn't work. I mean, gloves were off. She didn't even care that she was recognized and nobody'd sell it to her. So now, the morning of the murder, she's down to a hatchet. So here's the thing you know, people have asked me uh, because, well, let me, what I was going to say is I think after she killed Abby, she was trying to get out of the house. I don't think she wanted to kill Andrew yeah, okay. at that point. And so people have said, well, if that's the case, why would you put poison in their milk Tuesday night knowing he's going to drink it? And, indeed, he got actually more sick than Abby did, and they didn't die. Because poison is so different from using a hatchet on somebody. Poison is a remote form of killing someone. There's murder cases where someone's put poison in a relative's wine for instance knowing that's their routine they're going to have that glass of wine and then they make sure they're on the other side of the country when that guy has his glass of wine you can distance yourself with poison but to take a hatchet to someone is different the question is that morning after she's killed abby 18 strokes now she's actually gone through it and abby was facing her when she hit that first blow, you are hitting a living, breathing target that's looking at you. So did she decide then, I can't I can't go through with this with my father. You know what? I've gotten rid of Abby. That was the only thing I needed to do. She can't sign the deed now. Everything's back where it belongs. And I'm getting out of here. And she was trying to get Bridget the maid to go with her, and Bridget didn't bite. She wasn't feeling good because she was sick, too, from drinking the milk. And Lizzie tried twice to get her out of the house, including saying, hey, there's a sale of They're dress goods right right. at sergeants for eight cents a yard. And Bridget said, I don't feel good. I'm going to go up and lay down. She's now stuck. Andrew came home early. And I do believe that's one of the most eerie puzzle pieces of this. He normally came home at 11, but he came home at 1040 or 1045 because Abby didn't show up at the bank. And he came to figure out where are you, what's going on, if he hadn't come home early. I think Lizzie could have gotten out of the house, gotten Bridget somehow away from there, but she couldn't leave Bridget with a dead abbey. They'd have hung Bridget. She was an Irish immigrant and the only one there with a dead body. So I think the clock worked against her, and unfortunately for Andrew, that was the only day he broke pattern and came home too early.
0: Well, I think we can agree that both uh, Abby and Andrew were killed with uh, some sort of an axe or a hatchet. And yet throughout all the books, there seems to be a little bit of confusion as to how many uh, hatchets were actually involved, uh, how many showed up in the various court proceedings. Uh, Take us through, if you can, and uh, uh, detangle the web of axes for us.
1: I love this question. Well, the the cool part is it's right there in the the trial transcripts of the Superior Court when the coroners and the medical examiners were brought in. And this was almost a year after the murders. There were actually four trials. There was the inquest. There was the preliminary hearing, a grand jury hearing, and finally the Superior Court trial wasn't until June of the following year. And Lizzie stayed in jail that whole time, 10 months. So here's the thing. The coroner's report said... In Abby's skull, and I'm sorry if this is graphic, but there was gold gilt found scraped off against her bone, meaning that that hatchet was brand new. Back then, they were lined with gold gilt. They had a gold gilt stamp on them when you bought them, and she'd been hit 18 times altogether, most of them in the head and the right-hand side. And finally, it's bone against hatchet, and that gold... Came off on a couple of the of the wounds in her skull. Okay, brand new hatchet. When you get to Andrew and they actually brought the skulls in, the uh, medical examiner had created a tin foil plate the width of what the wounds would have shown. The hatchet had to be, and they believe they said it was either three three and a quarter inches wide or three and a half, but it wasn't more than that. They said a 4-inch wide shingling hatchet was not the murder weapon. But even more exacting was that it had to have been an old hatchet. They put a new shingling hatchet into the wounds. They formed a tinfoil plate first to show it was too thick. A brand new one wouldn't fit into the wounds, which showed that his had been from an older weapon that had been honed over the years, you know, sharpened and sharpened, so the blade was actually thinner. And then they took that broken hatchet head that they found in the cellar of the Borden house, inserted it in, and it fit perfectly. Whereas a brand new hatchet of the same kind wouldn't fit. It was too thick. So you've got, and that's the the report. There's no going around it. You've got two different hatchets involved in these murders. So, and here's the other reason I don't think Abby or Lizzie was going to kill Andrew, because after she killed Abby, I believe she went out back and threw that hatchet over the fence. Uh, a brand new hatchet was found a year later, actually during the trial. It was, you know, it had been weathered on, snowed, and everything else, but when they wiped it away, you could still see some gold gilt that this was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a brand new hatchet. You're not going to throw it away if you're going to kill one more person. A maniac's not going to come in and kill one person and chuck that one and go, well, I'll just go and dig in the cellar and see if I can find something else. I mean, So she uses that, that one to kill Andrew. And I got to give her props. In a 10 minute window of time, she went to the cellar and thought, how do I get rid of this hatchet? So she broke it to make it look like it couldn't have been used. She snapped it at the handle. And then wet it, washed it down, and rolled it in coal dust to make it look dusty and threw it up in a box of other tools that were covered in dust so that people would not give it any attention, thinking, oh, well, you couldn't have used it anyway, it's broken, and it's dusty. But they figured out immediately, the police did, that's not dust, that's coal dust, it's coarser, it's not the same thing. And that was, I believe with all my heart, the murder weapon for Andrew, and I believe it's on display At the Fall River Historical Society. And when you see that hatchet head, you're shocked at how diminutive it is. It looks little. It looks like something a woman would choose. I was expecting a bigger, you know, head on it, and it's not. Three and a half inches is not very wide.
0: There seems to be some modern-day dispute as to whether indeed the hoodoo hatchet, the handleless hatchet that is on display at the Fall River Historical Society, could be the murder weapon. And seemingly what is trying to uh, dispel it is that the, a hair was found on the hatchet, which turned out to be not human, but animal in nature through testing. Um, to which I say, well, well, so what? I mean, this hatchet head was was in a box in a barn or in a basement on a farm.
1: No, they threw it in a burlap sack. Well, that's later, but I'm <laughs> saying that they found it in a box.
0: Lizzie put it in the box. True. You true. found it in the box. It's a farm. Then, yes, they threw it in a burlap sack. Yes. And dragged it away. It's called now, transference. <laughs> we're going to assume... Lizzie scrubbed this hatchet clean, uh. put, put coal dust on it like it was Nutella, mm-hmm. and threw it in the box. But somehow a hair remained, but it's not human. Can't be the murder weapon. So, where? I mean, I don't believe that. But where do you think, do you think that the historical society now believes it's not the hatchet? Or am I missing something?
1: I don't know. When I interviewed uh, Dennis and Michael for the book, because I totally have the utmost respect for them, their book Parallel Lives is incredible. And we, we all like each other. I said, I got to tell you, I'm going to say right in the book that I believe you have the murder weapon in your display. And he mentioned the cow hair. And I said, "But the problem with that is John Morrison, their testimony, said he came around the corner of the house and saw the police putting the four hatchets and axes that they had found in the basement into a burlap bag. There were a thousand people standing around that house. They're not going to walk down to the police station holding murder weapons in their bare hands for everybody to gasp. and you know so of course they put and they probably got the burlap bag right out of the board and barn. And that bag was probably brought over from the Swansea farm because all of their meat, their chicken, their eggs, everything was brought over from the farm for them to use. So, yeah, in fact, I'd be surprised if you didn't find other stuff on these weapons.
0: Now, you also have uh, a fairly, uh, i say, imaginative or unique um, theory of, um, because there is so much talk about the clothing and is there blood on the clothing and how did she get rid of clothing, et cetera, or pull these off without being covered in blood. Uh, you have a theory about, about multiple dresses. Um, can you tell us about that? Uh,
1: there were actually three dresses involved, but as far as wearing, she was wearing two and here's why I think so. Uh, I believe she murdered Abby in the Bedford cord dress that she would had made in May, uh, so a few months before the murders. It had gotten stained with paint almost the exact day or shortly a day or two after she brushed up against paint. So it was pretty much ruined. It was just a house dress. Back then, they had a dress they wore around the house all day to clean or lay around, but then they would dress into something else to go outside. So these were your cheap cottons, not a big deal. So I believe that that's the dress she murdered Abby in. But here's the thing that's amazing: um, about nine days, of night, June, July 25th, she's in New Bedford for five days on a clandestine side trip. She was supposed to be going to Marion to join her friends for a fishing trip, but she doesn't. She jumps off in in. Uh, New Bedford and stays with a Mrs. Poole for five days. So the police find out that she's been there. This is after the murders. They go talk to Miss Poole. Was she ever outside your sight? She goes, Miss Poole said there was one morning, a Saturday morning, she was gone for an hour and a half and came back, and this is this is critical, with a bolt of cheap dress material. She did have that dress made up. She had it made up much looser than her other clothing. Even the people, her best friends, said they'd never seen it before. Mrs. Churchill, her neighbor, had never seen this dress before that she was wearing the day of the murders. Alice Russell, who saw her literally every day, had never seen this dress. It was described as loose-fitting, box pleat. Officer Doherty, bless his heart, as a man, didn't know quite how to put it. He goes, it was loose in the waist, like it had a bosom in the waist, meaning, you know, poofed out down there. He didn't know how else to put it. Uh, All of her dresses were always made very snug. Even the dressmaker said they were always made very snug. Nobody would ever seen it. Then Lizzie lied about the color of it. When asked what she was wearing that day, she said that it was a dark navy blue. Only two people agreed with her on the color, and that was her best friends, the Bowens, across the street. Everybody else said it was light blue. So she had that dress specially made to wear over the dress she was going to kill Abby in. She already knew she was going to use that dress, and it would have blood on it, and that they would probably look through the house for the murderer or a murder weapon, so... Best way to hide it is to just keep it on. So she has a looser dress made. And I believe she was wearing both those dresses the whole day of the murders. Um, at noon, the Andrew was killed at 11. At noon, the place is full of police. There's like 500 people thronging out front. Her dad's literally on the other side of the wall where they're looking over his wound. She's sitting in the dining room with Alice Russell. Alice leans over and tries to loosen her dress because it looks like something's pulled out and Lizzie stops her and says, "I am not faint. She literally stops her hand like don't not because uh, Alice was about to unloosen it, unhook it and then she then they she went upstairs she claims Dr. Bowen said, why don't you take her upstairs?" The minute they get up to Lizzie's room Alice went up with her Lizzie got rid of Alice. Basically, it was, um, when time comes, I want Undertaker Winward, because he took care of all the rich people. She basically sent Alice back out of the room. Alice went down to tell the doctor, you know, when it's time for the coroner, or the Undertaker, she wants Winward. By the time Alice got back up, and she was delayed for a few minutes, Lizzie was coming out of Emma's bedroom, tying that pink and stripe wrapper. She got out of that other dress as fast as she could.
0: But what about her hair, her face, um, her hands? Um, how did she clean uh, all that up? Wasn't there a, wouldn't there have been a, a, a massive amount of blood from, from those kind of murders?
1: Well, during the trial testimony, the, the medical examiners, the doctors and so forth were disputing the fact that the, the assassin would have been covered in blood. It shot forward, both Abby's, and Andrews. It was projected against the wallpaper. In Andrews' case, it went clear across the room and hit the kitchen door. Only cast-off uh, in the parlor, in the sitting room where Andrew was murdered, was found on the parlor door because of the hatchet going back and forth. But he said the assassin wouldn't ne- necessarily be covered in blood. In fact, when uh, Andrews' arterial uh They ordered the vein, whatever you want to call it, was was nicked. It shot across the wallpaper in front of him. Uh, They only found one spot on the ceiling. So her dress may not have had that much on it. Um, One of the things that I
0: still uh, find fun is that a lot of people don't know that uh, the heads of um, Abby and Andrew were not uh, buried with the bodies. Uh, They were decapitated and uh, made uh, guest appearances at several of the trial proceedings.
1: Saturday morning at 9 o'clock was the funeral at the home. Uh, Lizzie bent over her father's casket and gave him a kiss goodbye. Um, I'm not sure if they had his face turned into the pillow to you know, hide that part of his face. All the blows were to the left. But um, as they were getting ready to leave... Uh, undertaker woodward was taken aside and said "Marshal hilliard said don't bury the bodies they're not through with them yet after the family leaves put them in the receiving vault so he was told before they left the house and the sisters did not know uh, they left after the rights were read and the caskets were still sitting there they didn't want to watch him lowered into the ground the, so everybody left And the bodies were secreted to the receiving vault, which is just right down the little street there. It's still inside the cemetery. And the police went back a couple of times and measured wounds, took one of the hatches that they found and tried to see if it fit. And then finally, uh, Dr. Dolan said, we're going to have to remove the heads. I've got to take the skin off. He actually took them home and boiled them at his home on the stove. And, but the sisters were never told about it, that the bodies were buried without their heads. And the first they knew of it was the preliminary hearing when the skulls were brought out. And that's cruel. I'm sorry, but Emma about passed out. that She lets out a gasp. She lowers her head. There's tears running down her face. Lizzie hid her face behind her fan. Can you imagine? I mean, that was, that was pretty bad.
0: And the uh, prosecution did uh, a kind of a pen and teller magician's reveal <laughs> on the heads at the trial, uh, didn't they?
1: Yes. The, during the, the preliminary was the first time that the sisters had heard about it, and they, I think it was almost brought in for shock value. The way that the prosecution did it, they had a handkerchief kind of laying over it, and they when they were showing the dress that Lizzie turned in, and asking people on the stand, is this the dress you saw her wearing? And they said no. He casually tosses it on the evidence table, catching the handkerchief that's covering the skulls. I think, I'm not, I'm not sure that was an accident.
0: Uh, so I'm going to be uh, covering the, the trial uh, in a whole nother podcast, so uh, let's just jump forward to the uh, inevitable acquittal of Lizzie Borden, uh, where she was found not guilty after a very short deliberation by the jury, uh, many opinions as to uh, why she uh, got off. Um, what, is, uh, what is your thoughts on the matter?
1: If you look at it, two victims, both brutally butchered with a sharp object, uh, inept police work, Uh, so lack of blood evidence, that kind of thing. Uh, Basically, in that era, I think the main thing was a woman could not have done something like this, was the thought. I mean, this was so heinous, so overkill, and like we discussed earlier, women tended to use poison. So that was one thing. Lizzie is a 32-year-old spinster. The men on the jury, they looked at her and saw their daughters. They saw their wives. They couldn't picture that she could have done this. And she was a Borden. That was a huge name in Fall River. Like one of the four or five founding father type families, big name. And then um, you look at the fact that the police really did mess it up a lot. Uh, there was, they mishandled evidence. Um Law, they actually lost the handle to the broken hatchet. At one point, they had it. When they went back to get it, it was gone. So you've got that, all of that kind of thing. And then they didn't find a will. They could not figure out the motive. So they they were sunk.
0: So before we wrap up, uh, I do want to compliment you, Rebecca, on a uh, section of your book where you sort of, through narration, dramatize uh, the two murders. Uh, based, again, on fact, um, sort of taking a page from Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which, when written, was characterized as a um, nonfiction novel. So I took the liberty of having an actress friend of mine, Ryan Foster, read those two sections, um, and I'd like to uh, play them for you now.
2: Lizzie picked up her pile of freshly folded clothes from the kitchen table and started for the stairs. She stopped in the dining room and removed her low-tie shoes. She could hear Abby moving about the guest chamber in great, thudding steps. As she passed the front door, she checked the three locks. Everything was secure. Cradling the clothes in both arms, Lizzie climbed the steps in stocking feet. As she reached the curve in the stairs, she looked toward the open door of the guest room. Abby was swiping the window glass straight ahead of her near the dressing bureau. Why was she taking so long? Lizzie thought angrily. She was supposed to be in her room, changing to go out. Abby didn't hear Lizzie enter her bedroom and lay the clothes on the bed. Voices wafted into Lizzie's room from the open window facing the Kelly house to the south. She walked over to it and pulled back the lace curtain. Bridget was standing at the fence, laughing with Mary Doolin, the Kelly maid. She hasn't even begun to wash the windows, Lizzie thought in a panic. Her timeline was falling apart. With a final deep breath, she walked out onto the landing and into the guest room. A flash of blue swept across the dressing bureau mirror as Lizzie walked quickly across the room in her Bedford cord dress. Abby didn't turn until Lizzie was standing directly behind her. "'I think I have one of your handkerchiefs,' Lizzie said, her voice trembling. Abby was caught off guard. Lizzie was holding out the pile of laundry toward her, careful not to spill the pile of clothes that rested in both hands. Abby hesitated, not recognizing the handkerchief that rested on top of the pile. Lizzie suddenly pulled the hatchet from the clothes, tossing them aside." They flooded to the ground in a heap near the sewing machine. Before the startled woman could cry out, Lizzie swung the hatchet and caught her stepmother on the left side of her face, near the back by the ear. The wound hung open like a flap. Abby's look of shock as her eyes locked with her attackers gave way to mind-numbing pain. She doubled over in an instinctual move to cover herself. A flash of motion came from the second-floor bedroom window, of Adelaide Churchill's house, directly across from the Bordens, and a stone's throw from where Lizzie stood. She quickly threw the small half-shutters together in an effort to block the outside view into the room. It was suddenly much darker. She saw Abby place a hand on the wound, dazed. Lizzie swung the hatchet into the air, her teeth set with hatred. The next two blows hid her stepmother atop her head, leaving small incisions in her scalp. Abby, now in full panic, whirled in a mindless attempt to flee. The only path not blocked by Lizzie was toward the bed. Again, the hatchet fell, this time finding its mark. The blade sliced through the calico and buried into the skin near the nape of Abby's neck, going in a full two inches between her shoulders, leaving a gash four inches wide the entire width of the steel. The flesh spurted, drops hitting the pillow shams on the left side of the bed. Cast off from the raised hatchet flew through the air, a small drop landing atop Lizzie's white petticoat lying on the floor a few feet away. Abby hit the floor with a resounding thud. The board shook beneath Lizzie's feet as she watched her victim fall face first on the floral Brussels carpeting. The blue handkerchief flew from Abby's hand landing near her head. Lizzie paused only a moment, her chest heaving. The rage she had held inside for five years exploded. It came rushing out in a flurry of attacks. The hatchet swung through the air, sending droplets of blood onto the top of the swollen bureau drawers, the marble base, the mop board, and the bed frame. Only a few drops shot forward onto the wall before Abby's head. Straddling her enemy, Lizzie bent forward, her stocking feet hidden beneath her ruffled hem, and struck again and again at the exposed right side of her stepmother's head, until the blade was hitting brain and bone. She gripped the hatchet in both hands using shorter strokes and lost count of the strikes. Finally, her anger spent and her forearms tired from wielding the hatchet, Lizzie straightened, trying desperately to catch her breath. A dark blur caught her eye off to the right. There was something long and brown lying on the pure white counterpane. During one of the blows, Abby's fake braid of hair had caught on the blade and landed on the bedspread. She stood panting. In the soft shadows of the room, she stared down at the motionless form. The copper smell of blood filled the air. Her breathing began to slow. The room came into focus as her head was cleared. A strange calm overcame her. She had done it. It was over. Lizzie stepped into the room, her breathing short and erratic. She stood just inside the dining room door, her body at an angle so that the blood would not reach her. Tears rimmed her eyes. Her head screamed, and with a final breath, she lifted the hatchet over her head and paused. Trembling, she took a deep breath, raised it higher into the air, and let it fall against the left side of her father's face. The thin skin split, exposing his cheekbone. The blade sliced through his nose and cut through his lips. His hands flew up in a convulsive muscle reaction and then fell. The fingers clenched. Her breath coming in panicked bursts. She lifted it again and brought it down. It cut through his left eyebrow, shattering his eye socket. His eye fell forward onto his cheek, sliced in half. In a frenzy of swinging motions, Lizzie hid him again and again, shorter blows that lessened the amount of blood that was forming. One of the first blows hit his artery, and an arc of arterial spray splashed across the wallpaper near his body. As she raised the hatchet on each subsequent blow, the cast-off blood hit the parlor door to her right and slightly behind her. One drop flew up to the ceiling, and several others splashed onto the framework of the kitchen door at the base of the couch— She kept striking, her mind a blur of emotion. Bridget, unaware of what was happening two floors below her, picked up the screen to replace it into the front-facing attic window. Before she slid it into place, she looked down to see Mary Doolin from next door past the side fence that separated the Kelly and Borden houses. The Kelly maid was hauling a pail and brush, finally finished with the outside windows. Bridget laughed and called down to her. "'Are you coming with me later?' she yelled, her voice carrying down past the open sitting-room windows. Lizzie stopped, the hatchet raised, ready to strike the mutilated head again. The sound of Bridget's voice calling down past the open sitting-room window startled her. She froze, hatchet still raised.' Chest heaving, she blinked and looked down at the bloody mess that had been her father's face. As if coming out of a trance, Lizzie stepped back in horror. Her hands were shaking now. She had lost count of the blows. Swallowing the bile raising in her throat, she wiped the bloody hatchet head on her father's coat which she was wearing. She laid the hatchet on the couch arm and unbuttoned his coat with trembling fingers.
0: Well, to find out what happens next, you'll have to get the book. Again, I'd like to thank Rebecca F. Pittman for being on the show today. You can find her books and other projects at her website, www.rebeccafpittmanbooks.com. The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden is available on Amazon and also at the Fall River Historical Society. Be sure to watch for her upcoming book, The History and Haunting of the Palace of Versailles, due out this summer. Again, thanks for joining us, Rebecca.
1: Thank you so much for having me, James.